So you want to start a website, follow your passions, and make a living writing about it. Time was you could do just that, build an audience, throw some ads on there, and make a living. It was all about page views and banner ads. Well, the game has changed. GearJunkie.com is one of the largest outdoor gear and tech websites in the world, and their business model is likely the future of publishing. It's a blend of product reviews, industry news, and branded content. Founder Steven Reginald is leading his team through potentially murky waters of brand partnerships, sponsored stories, and product integrations to more than 1 million monthly readers. In this episode, we compare notes between Gear Junkie and what I'm doing with Bike Rumor and discuss how content is evolving. Would-be publishers, get ready to take notes. The podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. Hey, Stephen, thanks for coming on. Um, my first question for you is kind of like, how did you start Gear Junkie? But I figure we should give people a little bit of background. So before we talk about how you started Gear Junkie and why, what were you doing prior to this? I went to journalism school and started kind of the kernel of Gear Junkie while attending journalism school at the University of Minnesota. And actually during college started a zine about climbing called Vertical Jones. And it was all about climbing gear and the scene kind of around Minnesota in the Midwest. And the name is a play on kind of Jones and for vertical. It's just kind of a flat region. So kind of got my feet wet in the outdoor publishing sphere with an old school zine, kind of a proto blog. And Gear Junkie grew out of that over uh, the course of a couple of years. Was that a print thing, the zine or... That was a print thing, yes. It was a half-size booklet made at print shops, just you know, used the uh, infrastructure at the university, the, the big old Macs with Quark and <laughs> uh, prehistoric versions of Photoshop and scanning and slides and really learned soup to nuts how to build a publication from the writing, photography, ad sales, distribution, marketing, on a really small scale, but something that really affected how I went ahead when I built Gear Junkie a couple years later. Yeah, man, I remember those days of having to scan stuff, and oh, yeah. it's just, like, I had a huge Mac in college, and I remember somebody saw that I had, like, 500 megabytes of RAM, and they were just floored that I had that much. It was crazy. <laughs> I could run Quark and Illustrator at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a the kind of mid to late 90s with zip disks and just sketching for not only RAM but storage. I just remember not having enough money to buy the storage I needed <laughs> for, you know, trying to like find floppy disk after floppy disks and just dirt bagging it, really. Yeah. What, so what year was that that you started the uh, scene? Uh, 97 through 2000-ish is when Vertical Jones was alive and – what happened was a reporter at the Minneapolis Star Tribune, the paper here in Minnesota, did a story about our zine, and that turned into a relationship with this reporter. I started writing for him a little bit about the outdoors and about gear, and then came up with this concept of gear junkie for the Minneapolis Star Tribune. So it started as a newspaper column, and my first ever column was in 2002. It covered the uh, pocket rocket from MSR and kind of a iconic camp stove. And over the course of a few months, I learned how to self-syndicate the column and built it into a nationally syndicated newspaper column. So it was in about 14 or 15 papers at its peak. So that was the, the root of Gear Junkie. 
Right on. So I want to dissect a couple of those things just for a minute before we move on to the current version of that. So like with the zine, because I kind of, I remember when Dirt Rags started as well, and it was just literally black and white copied papers stapled together into half size as well. I mean, is that kind of how yours was? Yeah, for sure. When we got the budget to do some color, it was sort of a sea change. And uh, I think the first four or five issues had black and white covers and then we got a color cover and then we started introducing color and we partnered with a Chicago um, graphic designer who owned or had a partnership in a print shop. So it was, again, just scrappy and dirtbagging and piecing it together and building it one step at a time. So what was the the reason for wanting to do that? Like, were you thinking, that, hey, I'm going to try and build a little magazine or was this just yep. a fun project? Yeah, it was just combining my passion at the time was really rock climbing. And then I was in journalism school as a writer. So I thought, let's blend the two, try to produce something that I'm really into. So it was it's kind of been my push ever since is to work on things I care about and am passionate about. And also that can potentially actually make some money, which Vertical Jones did not. But <laughs> it was a good experiment. Um but the root of it actually comes from some rejection, too. I was working at the the college newspaper and was just frustrated with one of my editors. She had assigned me a big story, and I worked my butt off on this thing. And turns out they had already covered the topic. I don't even remember what it was. So the story got killed, and that was just kind of the last piece i didn't want to sort of depend on this infrastructure and decided to try to do my own thing from there right on so when you were doing all that was it uh was it a one-man show or were you uh, like kind of outsourcing the ad sales or something like that yeah so it was actually my girlfriend at the time now wife was managing editor and then actually my now managing editor at gear junkie is sean mccoy and he went to school with me. We were college roommates, and we built that. So it was Tara, Sean, and me, and then we had contributors. Um, and then Sean went to the Caribbean for 10 years and kind of had the Hunter S. Thompson journalistic experience down in St. Thomas working at a small paper, Virgin Island Daily News. And we reunited in about 2010 or 11, and he came back to Gear Junkie. So it was kind of full circle, and it's been awesome to work with Sean ever since. Cool. And then as, once you had the newspaper column, what was the syndication process like? How did you go about that? It was bootstrapping one, one, it was one email at a time. You know, it was literally finding who in Denver at the Denver post covered the outdoors and calling or emailing the guy and trying to figure out if we could work a deal. So I looked into doing UPI and some of the big syndicates. They just weren't interested because something like outdoor gear can't really scale to a thousand papers. And that's what they're looking to do. But it can scale to 30 or 40 or 50 papers, I thought. I never got that big, but that was kind of the goal. So it was very much working paper to paper. And what happened was the news in my training was really in newspaper journalism. And for years, I wrote for the New York Times and the Star Tribune locally here, have a real uh, bedrock of, of just being into the newspaper world. That all crashed in about 2004 or five, And that's when we, or I should say, I pivoted and looked at launching GearJunkie.com. And that's been, ever since that's been the focus. Um, the newspaper column still exists, amazingly. It runs in four or five papers every week, kind of small to mid-sized towns out west. But it's it's a side note, really, with the production that, that the website is now. Are you still writing that, though? I am. I am. Huh. Amazingly. Yeah, 15 <laughs> years. And uh, I think about not writing it every single week. But it also <laughs> sort of just keeps me honest because I know I have this absolute deadline every week where I need to produce something on time for something beyond my own little sphere. So it's uh, it's never really been a moneymaker, but it's always been kind of an exposure thing and a branding thing. All right, cool. 
Yeah, I'm sure it doesn't hurt having the Gear Junkie name showing up in, in print for the people that are still getting that. It doesn't hurt, but here's also the thing. When it, when we launched this website and I convinced two guys to partner with me to launch it, one of my main theories was that via this large circulation in newspapers, I would have sort of a built-in web audience, and that doesn't really translate is what we found out. It's just when you're looking at a physical newspaper, it's hard to put that down and go and type in a website address and sort of make that you know, it's 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 a rare transaction that that just the branding play is there, but kind of the tit for tat. I'm reading Gear Junkie. Let's check it out in the broader sense online. That that never really panned out. So that was an eye opener for me. Hmm. Yeah, that's weird. I would have thought kind of the way you were thinking is that it would it would translate, but interesting. Yeah. I don't know. Okay, so then was it 2005, 2006 when you launched the website? 2006 and put an ad on Craigslist and didn't know any better way to do it at the time, but found two business partners. One, Mike Santi was a media sales guy and he's still my business partner and we've built it ever since. The other guy, John Peacock was a dev designer. And so we had kind of a three legged stool of content editorial was me, business was Mike and John built the site. So launched in in 2006 and I did have the industry knowledge and contacts from doing the newspaper column for a couple of years so I had a bit of a leg up but not not hugely I mean we launched and had you know in the hundreds of readers so it was very tiny for the first few months and have just slowly and organically grown it since right and then um because your content's pretty broad, you know, like with, with mine, with Bike Rumor, it's bike tech. With you guys, it's a little bit of every kind of outdoor yeah. gear. And was there a particular focus at first and then you've expanded or has it always been so kind of comprehensive? The focus at first was really selfishly me and what am what am I into and what am I passionate about and I'm an obsessive runner, climber, adventurer, endurance athlete, and really used the first-person lens for the first five years of Gear Junkie was was the theme. And so it was, what product am I taking to Patagonia, or what am I climbing Mount Rainier with, writing about that, et cetera. And that was fine, and it established kind of the template of what Gear Junkie is, but it didn't really allow the publication to scale at all. So in about 2008 or nine, started to pull in contributors. And then a couple years later, started to hire editors in house. And now we see it as really just an online magazine, essentially. And our, our purview is pretty broad. It's kind of everything inside of an REI store. And then a little bit, a little bit seeping into tech, a little bit sort of RV camping, auto and then on the other side a little bit into the hunt fish space so over the years it's just gotten more and more broad but the theme is always just nothing boring what's trending what's hot and that can be that can be you know any number of things on a given day yeah well i mean we all like to geek out on the gear so it's, it's definitely kind of easy you know, i mean I've, I've started doing random stuff that's not bike for ours too and there's always interest in it the um so, you know, like I've met some of your other writers, um, they kind of have their own interests. And so like one of the guys I've been meeting at a couple of events recently, you know, he's always at the bike events because that's kind of his real yep. passion. Is is that how you expanded? Was you brought on this writer and they were really into bikes or they were really into camping and then that or was it more of a like a strategic thing like, hey, you know, we need to cover more camping. We need to cover more bikes or how'd that work out? My... It was it was more the former where we would meet people or journalists or writers that had a beat and a passion and sort of we got in sync with. And you're talking about Tom Puzak, I think, who's our main bike guy. And he's just a bike junkie. He's one of my uh, friends and longtime race partners. We've been all around. We won a big national championship adventure race together. So we have a long relationship and he's he's kind of one of my core close contributors he's a contributing editor. he's not in-house 
Um, out in Oregon, I have a crew of people, the yoga slackers, who I've raced with and interfaced with for over a decade, and they're my core kind of adventure athlete guys. And then in-house, we really are a little more journalistic or editorial. I have editors that are not necessarily beat reporters. They take on a wide range of topics and news every day. So I think we look to kind of our beat reporters as as sort of our contributors, people that are into those spots, maybe they're guides or, or uh, you know, product, ex-product developers or whatever that really have an expertise and have a beat. And then in-house, we're a little more general, it's a little more traditional editorial staff. Right. Uh, I want to talk about some of the early forgeries because you mentioned going to Patagonia. So when you first started this, you know, I'm, I'm guessing within the first couple of years, you're going to test equipment at Patagonia or picking equipment because you were going... Like, what mm-hmm. else were you doing? How in the world do you come off of writing a zine and a newspaper column and be able to afford to take off on big trips to Patagonia or wherever? <laughs> well, that was several years into it. But I think one of the first big things I did was in 2006 called the Primal Quest, which was a, I think, seven or eight day adventure race across Utah. And what happened was their PR called and said, do you want to come cover this race? And I said, no, but I want to do the race. And I was training for an Ironman at the time, and I was doing some local adventure races and just kind of committed to it and had six months to train and form a team and build all you know the gear kits and just treated it as, again, kind of something I was really into lifestyle-wise and passion-wise, but also that I could write about and, and build into my business and have, have taken that template to extremes and to two extremes where it was like not making me any money but I was having a lot of fun and then um you know and then marriage and children and mortgages and things like that started to happen and I become more and more disciplined but it's only really been the last I don't know three to five years where honestly I've treated this as maybe the business that it needs to be I've just really seen gear junkie as a passion for so long yeah well, it, it's fun. It's almost, I mean, what I've found with mine is it's kind of hard to start thinking about it as a business, even though it's the reality has been probably slapping me in the face for years. It's taken us a long time to treat it as such. Uh, so yeah. from a business standpoint, what surprised me about you guys is the other side of it, this monopoint media. So when did that side of it come around? And can you explain real quick what that is compared to Gear Junkie? Yep. So we own Monopoint Media and Gear Junkie, and they're distinct LLCs. They kind of function intertwined in a lot of projects. So Monopoint is our in-house agency, and it grew out of just a demand from brands to want to do more than what a traditional publisher would do. So our biggest example maybe is we do this annual project with the state of Minnesota where we're based. It's a tourism project, and it's a huge interactive scavenger hunt all around the state with a big social media component it's called checkpoint minnesota it's kind of this crazy event that we do every year it's a 10 week long thing um more concretely we're doing video series for the likes of uh yeti and um yakima and timberland over the years we've worked with those guys so monopoint really functions as a creative agency and gear junkie functions as a publication and also a place where we can present these projects to our wide audience. And it's it's been a learning experience and also a ever evolving thing. You know, when we launched Monopoint, it was really it was launched in 2006 as well, but it didn't really do much business for 5 years and it's also up and down a lot more. Gear Junkie is a very steady business monopoint spikes and then it kind of goes quiet for a few months and it's just a different animal but it's it's been this sort of symbiotic thing we've built right is it so i'm looking at the the list of services you provide for monopoint it's you know content development and social media content distribution is there like how do you balance when you produce say a video series for Yeti or one of the first ones I noticed I was looking at your site around the holidays and you guys had a a huge huge spread of ads and product gift guides for Cabela's which mm-hmm. I mean was obviously a paid promotion 
so how do you balance the editorial for a brand that you're also doing paid promotional work for? It's really about transparency with the reader and we never will sell a, an objective gear review on a product. That's always the backbone of what we do, but certainly we will take a look at say some ambassadors that Yeti supports and build a video series around their kayak expedition or whatever it may be. So, and it's presented by Yeti. So to us, it's really transparency. And then number two is just doing good work and that will move to the top. If you're doing work that is not world-class and not journalistic and whatever your, whatever your structure is, it doesn't work for anybody. The, the audience doesn't like it. They don't share it. They don't view it. And the client is not happy. So it's built on kind of those two things of transparency, some in-house policies, and then also just doing really good work. Right. So you know, this the custom content stuff has allowed us to budget massive creative projects that we otherwise would not have ever been able to do because they have the support of these brands. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's it's this weird shift. And so, not to bore you with my story, but why I found that Cabela's thing so fascinating is because <laughs> up until really like these last eight to twelve months, I've been just maybe really too naive and thinking, oh, you know, we'll just if we just produce good content, the banner ads will keep it supported. Mm-hmm. And it's just getting harder and harder and harder to sell banner ads even to endemic companies you're the bike brands they're just not as interested in them anymore and then mm-hmm. the networks as i'm sure you know you know it seems like what they pay just keeps dropping every year yeah we don't do any networks we cut that out a year or two ago and we were really just using it kind of to backfill some inventory but we found that it just kind of cheapened the site experience and what we really do now is almost always we sell a media buy combined with a content and social media play. So it's sort of a a multi-part media plan and hitting our readers from a few different spots. Um, You know, we still do a lot of revenue in our banner advertising and our high impact stuff, but most of our big projects have a content component as well. So how do you do that? You know, because I think Vital MTB does not, I don't know if they tie into content, but you know, I've heard that they don't really run standard banners. They'll sell those, they sell what they can sell. And then those people get kind of their percentage of rotations. Is that how you do it? So if you don't sell all of your impressions for a month, then what goes in that space? Right. We kind of have house ads that will promote some of our projects. For example, that, that would be what would go into that space. We are sold out a lot of, a lot of months. So it's kind of, that keeps my editorial team cranking to try to get more, more viewers. So, um, but yeah, we certainly use those, use those slots to promote our in-house projects when we can. Okay. Do you sell, and I don't want you to feel like I'm stealing ideas. I'm just, I'm kind of like trying to ask the question is that if somebody were going to create a gear junkie for, you know, whatever space they're interested in, like how would they go about it in this day and age? Mm -hmm. Do you sell those ad spaces on like a percentage basis or still with a fixed number of impressions guaranteed or something else? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we sell them on CPM rates and a fixed number of, of guaranteed impressions. So it's, you know, 5 million impressions at X amount CPM cost per thousand impressions. So pretty traditional uh, media sale with, with the banner ads. And then the content is is the opposite. It's just there's no real template. And so when we're putting together a proposal for, say, a 10-part content series with videos and articles it it really depends what we're doing and who we're working with and what they need so we can do some that are more budget oriented and some where we're getting film crews together and traveling all over and it's it's high budget work right are those harder to sell or the the yeah packages they are um but kind of one pro tip we've learned over the years is that it's better to put your focus on selling a few big projects versus 17 little projects. So you're just hurting a lot more cats with the latter. And also, um, you know, we don't, we don't half ass anything. So 
we don't ever want to produce something where we say, oh, that's just a X amount project. We want to do everything top notch. So in-house, we need to stay motivated 100% in everything we do. So we, we have really shifted to try to sell bigger projects versus a lot of little stuff, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. I, I agree. The, um, the other kind of bullet point on your Monopoint Media services is the ad network. And this is something I've thought about, you know, like there's a lot of smaller bike websites out there that can't afford their own ad sales guy. And I was, keep thinking, well, maybe my ad sales guy could help sell ads for theirs. Is that mm-hmm. sort of what you guys are doing acting as an ad network? It is. And that's, it's sort of dropped off, honestly, because as the network, this is an idea that actually started literally 10 years ago. And at one point, the Monopoint Network had, I think, 10 blogs, and we were syndicating media and ads across those. And it was, it was just something that was, again, the, the herding cats analogy definitely comes up there. But what happened was a lot of the network uh, structures have just matured obviously to be very plug and play. And so we're not doing that a ton anymore. Although in certain situations we will, um, bring in some of our longtime partners to do, to help serve, say a large media buy. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's become a, uh, it's become not worth it most of the time for us to do that at this point. Right. Okay. I got one more question about it. not the ad network stuff, but like the, the crossover between the content for a brand partner and the site, because we've had some brands talk, ask us now about writing copy for them or helping to, you know, do that. Like, do you get, do you get flack from any of the other media outlets for offering both services? Cause there's, you know, to the outside person looking in, there's this obvious conflict of interest or potential conflict of interest. And I can just imagine if I made it public that, you know, and I'm not yet, but like writing copy for say brand X mm-hmm. people, there's some people that would just light me up <laughs> and I don't want to deal with that. Yeah, we don't do a ton of that. I'm not sure what you're looking at, but where that might come into play is like with this tourism project that we do. It's it's more out it's more beyond kind of the outdoor gear industry. What we've, you know, what we found is that it's just we don't want to we don't want to produce content that we would run on our blog for somebody else. We want to put our resources toward our own thing. In fact, we had a project maybe 3 or 4 years ago with a large um, hunt fish retailer that hired us to do, I think it was like a 20 part content series for its blog. And we actually, we actually ended up severing the contract about halfway through because we just felt like it was not worth our time. And we were sort of wasting our effort. And why are we not putting this back into gear junkie? And it's more complicated than that, but high level, we don't do a ton of that. And certainly in, in sort of outdoor gear, we don't really write or syndicate content for, for you know, we're not writing the content for the North Face blog, for example. Although at one point that was an interesting, let's look into doing that. We kind of experimented and have not really moved ahead on that. Why? Same reason as with the other one? I think that's the main reason we don't want to kind of blow our wad on someone else. You know, it's like we want to do the very best work for as far as sort of our editorial articles, those we want to live on gearjunkie.com. And so that's where we put our focus. We could maybe hire a, you know, a different writer and maybe it's, it's also because you're sort of competing against yourself, right? It's like you're writing for a different outdoor blog where you're trying to build your own blog and it, it just gets weird. Yeah. <laughs> so. so staff wise, you started with uh, three people you mentioned. How quickly did you start bringing on other full-time people? I think around 2010 or 11. So it took about five years to kind of get beyond the three of us. And we had contributing writers, but as far as employees, it was maybe 2011. We brought on Sean McCoy, who I mentioned earlier to be our managing editor. And then we hired a project guy and uh, kind of scaled from there. But now we have eight people in-house and then two two of us are the business partners. So it's just me and Mike Santee now 
own and operate Gear Junkie, and we have eight employees. Wow, that's a lot. How many of those are on the editorial side? How many are on other? So it's me and then three editors in-house, and we have two project managers, a dev guy, a video guy, and a couple sales guys. Right on. Cool. The, let's see, I have more questions I'm trying to think. So starting out, I mean, I'm assuming when you started, you were running typical banner ads. How quickly did that revenue model evolve to like branded content or sponsorships and everything else? We had a sell sheet at the outdoor retailer trade show, I think in 2006, that had sort of the primordial uh template of what custom content could be and we didn't really know what we were trying to sell and nobody bought it anyways so (laughs) i don't i don't even remember what this was but we had sort of this inkling about we could do this custom content thing and it wasn't until i don't know three or four or five years later i can't even remember anymore where we had a brand that wanted to do video and so that i think it was with video that we really started to budge into that um I'd also mentioned to you earlier before the call that I was in North Carolina with this Haynes brand company in 2010. I did a big project with those guys around a Mount Everest expedition, went to Nepal, lived at Everest Base Camp, worked with their video team, worked with their content team, worked on their blog. That was a massive eye-opener to me around what you can do with custom content. So being in kind of the middle of that huge multi-million dollar content project in 2010 which was really um the start of all of this um that was a a moment in the in the sand for me when i got back from nepal things changed with gear junkie for sure was it um well let's move on to the content side of it so i'm looking at your content on your homepage right now and there's you know, like with ours, it's more just like, here's what's new, here's what's new, here's what's new. And yours, it's, there's a lot more of a storytelling theme, I think, to it. Or at least that's the appearance from the titles and the images and all yeah. that. Like, it's it's not just a straight up, here's all the new, go- uh, here's all the new gear. Um, again, Sorry, how, how has your, how has your, con- the type of content you produce evolved over the years? And like, why are you doing what you're doing now? We see ourselves as a newspaper of the outdoor world. So three of my editors are traditionally trained newspaper journalists. We get up every day. We try to figure out what's going on in our space, and we write about it. So yesterday it was Killian climbing Everest twice in one week. Today we're about to publish an article on a new search and rescue card that you can buy in Utah. We did something on a new Patagonia food division this morning already so very much news focused we want to be that news source and then every day we publish a gear review or a sneak peek on a piece of gear so that's kind of the backbone is gear and gear reviews and then beyond that we do we're really focused on news lately and in addition to that we do personality profiles and feature stories and some other templates we also have a pillar story that we do every day so every day we have one story that we're going to do regardless it's on the schedule and beyond that we're pretty organic you know what's coming down the transom what's what is trending what's on social media what's happening who fell off the mountain or who climbed the mountain so we're, we're very much in real time adjusting treating it just like a newsroom and is that because these are the kinds of things you guys personally care about, or do you find that that's what resonates more with your audience? It's both. I think it's maybe more the latter in that I've seen our traffic scale significantly since we became more newsy. Gear Junkie used to be very much a source of gear review information, which has a long tail and has a lot of potential for search, but it doesn't really catch on fire on social media. News is the opposite. It's pretty much only content for a week or two. It doesn't have that great of a long tail, but it can catch on fire. And I think it also stamps you as an in-the-know 
source of information in your industry. So it's a really good kind of branding thing at a high level to just be on the pulse of what's going on every day. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I think that's one of the areas where we've lacked with bike rumors because we are just like tech, tech, tech. Um, I feel like we're sort of lacking a personality, whereas a lot of the other bike sites, you kind of like, you know what they are. And with us, mm-hmm. we're just, we're sort of this thing. We get a lot of traffic and everybody knows of us, but if you had to say, what is bike rumor? It's kind of hard to, hard to pin a personality on us. So that's another thing we're trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's always, I mean, that's always hard to get sort of give personality and soul to the publication. It's something we've worked on for years and I don't really know. It's a mushy, I don't really know what, how people perceive it, but I think, I think your junkie is more perceived like bike rumor. It's just straight up a source of, techie gear information and person profiles and but that shifted a lot in the last couple of years as we become more of a news source and focused also on a much broader segment you know everybody from rv campers to hammock hammock aficionados and just some of those sort of articles are more viral than anything we do hmm. yeah it's funny like the the sprinter band conversions and stuff when we post on some of the more killer ones of those it gets so many hits and it yeah. has nothing to do with bikes but people love yep. that stuff oh man those are huge yeah so a couple of like logistic things like so the, these tools because you guys are obviously covering a lot of stuff like how do you find all that news do you have google alerts set up just constantly on social media we have four editors really that are constantly on social media and are getting press releases every day and attend all the trade shows and know all the people that we need to know. And that's kind of the basis. You know, I get up every day and kind of look at my usual sources. But what we don't really want to do is regurgitate information that's out there. We need to do that if it's if it's important enough news, if it's big enough news. But for the most part, we want primary source information. So that that's kind of the holy grail, at least. So can we break the news? Can we get a scoop? Can we add a new perspective to something? So it's just our mindset. And there's no real, you know, the, the, the main ways are in our email and on our social media feeds. But what I always challenge my editors to do is sort of take something and twist it a little bit. So say there's a story on... Killian Jornet, who's climbed Mount Everest twice in one week, that's awesome. It's also being covered everywhere. Well, what if we did a story on the footwear that he used, you know, just looking at a piece of it? Or what if we took a contrarian view to something? A couple months ago, a story came out about the 50 healthiest cities in the U.S., and I said, well, what's, what's number 50? And it was like Biloxi, Mississippi or something. So we looked at that and the headline was something like the least healthy city in the U.S. So twisting things and giving a new context is is an approach that we try to try to use. Cool. Do you guys use like what are some of the tools you use internally? You know, like we use Slack mm-hmm. all day long for ours. What yep. are some of the things you guys use? Yeah, we are Slack addicts. We use it a ton. It's just kind of our real time talking app (laughs) and then uh just all the google tools all the regular stuff um nothing too fancy beyond that you know we we do have an actual newsroom so everybody's here and we can actually talk human to human when we need to (laughs) but slack has become really a massive productivity tool especially for my managing editor who's in denver it's like he's in the room with you so that's that's been an amazing um you know, upgrade to our process. And then we use all sorts of tools that I don't really get involved with, but like Sprout for social media posting and metrics and a lot of those more project oriented tools that I, I don't touch on a daily basis myself. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of curious because I, I keep getting this one email from this guy that will not stop emailing me for a CRM thing. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't do the ad sales, so I don't, you know, I've got my database of people I talk to for product stuff, but like, do you guys use any kind of CRM for sales leads or anything like that? We do. I don't even know what they're called because I don't really work in that area, but um, I'm pretty old school. You know, I literally have lists of people and kind of my uh, Rolodex, quote unquote, on my laptop. So 
I'm just, you know, I'm not the guy to talk about the, the, the latest tech in CRM, but um, my ad staff certainly utilizes some of that stuff. Right. And then back end, are you guys WordPress or something else? We are WordPress. It's a pretty custom WordPress application that's evolved over years um, and is always evolving. But yeah, it's a WordPress-based site. Yeah, cool. Right on. All right, so for somebody that wants to replicate Gear Junkie in a different space, hopefully they're not going to compete with you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, maybe two or three of the biggest challenges you face and one or two of the pieces of advice you'd give to somebody starting off. I read a quote recently, I think it was from the guys that started the Chive, which is kind of a bro site, but it was it was an interesting piece in that they they think that sort of in digital publishing, the cement has hardened, was their quote, which means that it's sort of this established landscape at this point of brands and media media brands. And I think it's really difficult to launch an old school media property, i.e. an online magazine and really gain a significant audience right away. I mean, we've seen it with things like Vox in the last couple of years, but they get massive VC funding and have this approach that is really the opposite of something like Gear Junkie, which has been bootstrapped for 10 years. So my advice to somebody starting now would probably not be to do exactly what I did because it took 10 years to get here. And I think the landscape is really different than it was 10 years ago. I think I would try to work closer with brands honestly some of the some of the coolest content work being done lately is with brands you look at like the yeti video series and what the north face does with camp four at all there's just a lot of examples of creative individuals that work closely with the brand and have a lot of license a lot of creative and editorial license but it's brought to you by a brand so i think that's been to me as a journalist, sort of the hardest thing to get through my head over the years. And I, I, wrote, I wrote for the New York Times for years, and they wouldn't even let me take a free lunch with somebody. I mean, the editorial policies are so strict. They just want extreme separation. And that's, that's, that's needed, and that's a journalistic pillar that needs to remain. But there are other ways of doing content, especially if you're talking outdoor adventure and essentially fun things so you know covering snowboarding is not serious news but if you do it right and it's brought to you by whoever you do amazing work so it's kind of nebulous but i think that's the advice i'd give is maybe the traditional journalistic model is not really where i would start if i was if i was to build gear junkie right now maybe i'd start with a podcast maybe i'd start with a social facing content uh, initiative of some sort. I don't know what that would be, or maybe it would be something that would blend a in real life project with an online, you know, I think it's something like the November project where it's really linking that sort of online shareability and viralness with something that happens in the real world. So there's, there's a lot of interesting ways to do things now. And there's a lot of templates that you can look at that didn't really exist 10 years ago when I was looking at starting this site. Yeah. Like the call collective. Have you seen that guy's work? I don't think so. He's uh, I mean, he's basically funded by Cannondale and Mavic and he goes oh, right. around and yeah. rides uh -huh. all the, the best climbs and road biking. But uh, yeah, same idea. You know, he's, it's a fully branded content series, but um, yeah. So kind of along those lines, you mentioned podcasts and stuff. I'm curious how big of a deal is video for you guys now? It's a pretty big deal. We sell a video production with a lot of our projects, if not a series of videos. And we also do in-house editorial videos. And I would say it's it's maybe like 10% of our effort is toward video. So it's it's measurable, but certainly we're still very much focused on words and photos. So just old school blog posts and news. Um, Video is a nut we've been trying to crack or understand now for a couple years, and it's just sort of a slowly, uh, it's it's never taken off virally for us, but we've slowly kind of learned how to, to do it, and we do we treat video really differently than we used to. We treat it as 
just kind of the same template we do with an article. Like, okay, does this deserve 6,000 words in a feature story or is it a 300-word blog post with one photo? And we try to think about video in those same regards. Are we going to spend half a day and build a Facebook-style video that talks about a new snowshoe made out of foam? Or are we going to travel to the Pacific Crest Trail three times to film a crew of hikers and then enter that video in a film festival? So uh, there's there's different levels of how we do video. And we have a we have a film this year in the Banff World Tour. So we had that was a real victory for us. And it's it's on a group of hikers called Packing It Out. It's a crew that collects garbage as they hike or bike on these massive routes and the whole project was sponsored by REI. So REI allowed us to build essentially a short feature film around these guys and a series of articles. And it was hugely successful with our readers. The readers loved it and it won uh, accolades in a film festival. So that to me, that was a case study in, in custom content that works. Was the film festival aspect of that always the goal with that one? Or is it just kind of a happy coincidence that after it was done? It's always the goal, I guess, maybe in a nebulous sense. Um, I think with that video, it was actually the goal, as in we were building sort of a short feature film. With most of our videos, no, it's not the goal. We don't enter them in film festivals. But again, it kind of goes back to what is our what is our goal with a particular production. Yeah. Have you guys, like when you're doing the videos and stuff, do you typically try and tie a lot of images into that? And, and the reason I ask is because this year at Sea Otter was the first year that we did a lot of video for Bike Rumor. And I realized after the fact, I'm, I'm editing the videos and I'm popping it up there. And I didn't actually take any photos of anything. So I had to do just screen grabs. So we had uh, photos to fill in on some of the auto post stuff. And it's, so, mm. I don't know, like how do you guys build your video stories? Do you Is it solely video or do you see a value for including images and words still? We do use still images and words in some of our social media type videos and maybe add a little movement to the, to the still image. It just kind of depends what we're doing. But yeah, we've hit that too where, oh, we did a big video shoot and we forgot to get any stills because <laughs> <laughs> you kind of are focused one way or the other. Yeah. Oh, okay. So what are a couple of the, maybe just one or two quick ones, the challenges that you guys have faced over the years and how'd you overcome them? Oh, there have been many challenges over the years. I don't know. Um, I mean, the overarching challenge has been to sort of break through the noise of the internet, get people to notice what you're doing. And that just comes from years of building a brand and doing good work and building audience trust and, hoping that when somebody sees a gear junkie article, they want to click on it and know what it's going to be about in some sense or know the quality of. So that's just been a massive, you know, multi-year kind of nebulous challenge. And then there's been, you know, very much uh, laser sighted things that have happened over the years where we need to pivot like Google algorithms that take hold and you have to go in and fix things. So, kind of on both ends of the spectrum and been doing it a long time. So I've seen a lot of challenges over the years. That's for sure. Right. Yeah. But yeah, other than like just posting your stories to social media and stuff, what else do you guys do to get the word out? We have a e-newsletter and we have kind of a daily audience of people that actually type in gearjunkie.com and see what's going on. And then all kind of the common practices with RSS and some of the other syndication. So, and you know, the, the main thing though is just our long tail and having our articles um, searchable by Google. So on, on a given day, maybe 80% of our traffic is from search. So it's somebody looking for the latest gear from the outdoor retailer show or Kelty tent review or whatever it may be. So our, our long, long tail is, is super important. And then every day we have sort of this traffic from social media and in day to day, uh, whatever it may be, RSS or e-newsletter. Right. Have, have you found like anything that you guys have tried for a while on your site or, or maybe even continue to do that? 
at the end of the day, it's just a complete waste of time. <laughs> oh man. Let's or, see. or let me, let me complete waste of time in that it doesn't produce any results. Yeah. I think one thing that comes to mind is we've tried quantity over quality in the past and that doesn't work. So, <laughs> so have we. <laughs> yeah. So we, it, it's like, can you write 10 articles a day, but they get 10,000 page views or can you write one good article that gets 10,000 page views, you know? So, um, we've really stepped back and focused on quality and we also want to produce quantity. So it's, we want to do three to six quality articles or blog posts a day. It's kind of our goal. Whereas at one point we were doing a lot more shorter and this was maybe five or six years ago, shorter blurby, sneak peeks on gear um they just never really took off because you know what anybody can do that it's not special you know that's kind of what we learned and we were using catalog shots that the manufacturers would give us and regurgitating a press release and that's done all over the internet so what we add is the lens of years of doing this so an expertise and a journalistic eye, and then just a lot of context to whatever writing about. To me, context is really what matters, and that means how do you focus this headline? What photo do you use as the lead image? What is your nut graph? You know, some of that stuff to just really frame it up with, for the reader and make make the communication process as effective as it can be. Right. Yeah. No, that's great advice, man. Thanks. Well, Stephen, I appreciate your time. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for the deep dive. Yeah, man. Anytime. I'll talk to you later. Thanks, Tyler. There's no doubt that life is good as a journalist when you're writing for a popular website. We get invited to killer events, play with the latest toys, and generally get treated pretty well. Behind the scenes, though, it's a lot of work. The landscape is constantly changing, audiences are fickle, network ads continue to decline in value for publishers, and we're always worried about getting scooped on big news. Steven's advice on doing more storytelling and working with the brands to create good content that provides value to all three parties, you, the brand, and the reader, is the holy grail of modern publishing. Some outlets take pay to play too far and just aren't trustworthy. With Bike Rumor, I relied on banners far too long. Gear Junkie's playing in that lucrative and respectful middle ground, and it's a good place to be. If you can figure out the right revenue mix, launching your own media outlet, whether it's a podcast, blog, magazine, or YouTube channel, can be incredibly fun and personally rewarding. It's worth figuring out from the start if it's going to be just your voice or a third-person voice where other contributors may come on board down the road. I hope you liked this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. If so, could you take 30 seconds, head to iTunes, search for The Build Cycle, and hit subscribe? That helps me get bigger and better guests for you. Thanks, and until next time, keep building.